Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast for our Wednesday episode for week eight of the 2023-2024 NBA season. I am your host, Carson. Welcome to the show, uh, slash welcome back to the show. Uh, For those uh, who have listened previously, along with, of course, any brand new listeners to the podcast out out there, uh, both ways we want to appreciate our support uh, appreciate your support rather, uh, of us and, and the podcast appreciate you tuning in. And, uh, that's why we do this. Um, just me today, of course, uh, you know, we had Wyatt on last time, uh, and today's episode going to be pretty straightforward, our normal Wednesday type stuff. Although we only have, uh, one day to focus on and five games from that day. Um, so those take up care of our five games to talk about in our summaries, uh, with the five on five drill and the six men, uh, along with our key news, not many, too many items there. So, um, let's go ahead and waste no more time. Let's, uh, jump right into that. All right, here we go. And we're going to start with the first game from last night's action, Tuesday night. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks winning a close game at home against the Los Angeles Lakers, 127 to 125, your final score as Luca has started to kind of pick back up uh, bigger stat lines and the Mavericks continue to win. They slumped for just a moment kind of during the whole in-season tournament run, and now they Seem to be making a bit of a pushback, you know, with some some big games from Luca, but also the team gelling well. Um, so a big win for them. Uh, it looked in jeopardy, though. I mean, they they owned the game for much of the first half and and into the third quarter. But the Lakers made a push, took the lead briefly uh, in, in the beginning moments of the fourth quarter uh, at a couple different occasions. But then the Mavericks fought back. Great resiliency. Uh, you know, you lose momentum like that. It can be hard to to get that back. And they they did a great job there uh, getting those not only back into the game, but getting themselves back in a position to win the game. So great job by Dallas all around. Uh, Looking at the box scores for the Lakers, uh, Anthony Davis, 37 points and 11 rebounds with two blocks leading them and not slowing down at all from his in-season tournament type play. Uh, LeBron not slowing down as well. 33 points, nine assists, eight rebounds, three steals and a block. Um, Both those guys, pretty solid percentages. There's not much more they really could have done in this game. Um, and then they also got 22 points from Austin Reeves off the bench. They're sort of sixth man this point this season. Um, eight assists and five rebounds for Reeves as well. Good percentages. Those three guys delivered. I'm not sure what they really needed. Maybe some extra points from a D'Angelo Russell um, or, you know, a Cam Reddish or Rui Hachimura. Um, you could argue that. I mean, Cam Reddish starting only had four points. Uh, maybe you'd like to see a handful more points from him. Um, D'Angelo Russell, especially as your starting point guard, maybe argue that, um, Torian Prince was great. 15 points, five of six from three point range. Um, but then you look at things for the Mavericks again, Luca, 33 points, 17 assists and six rebounds, uh, kind of going at LeBron a bit as far as, Hey, you know, you're not the only bigger forward type of guy who can be the point forward and can make the plays for the team. Um, not saying it's quite a direct comparison. I'd still say LeBron is, you know, head and shoulders above Luca, but still a great passer in his own right. You know, Luca getting the job done in the assist category. And this is a, a game for the Mavericks where they were without Kyrie Irving with the heel contusion. So that's big for them. They got a big 32 points from Tim Hardaway Jr. off the bench, uh, 
five of 10 from three point range. And uh, that's what he's capable of. I like to see more consistency there. He's becoming a six man type guy for them. Um, they also got 26 points from Dante Exum of all people starting it forward along with Grant Williams, unique lineup, kind of three guards really. But Exum with 26, four boards, three assists, a steal, a block, seven of nine from three-point range for Exum. Uh, you know, as a Jazz fan, I'm one saying, where was this in Utah? But of course, it's one game. I don't want to get too too crazy uh, about that stat line. And then Grant Williams also shooting well from three, 19 points, five of seven from three-point range, shooting nearly 50% from the three-point line as a team, uh, even though the Lakers actually shot a slightly better percentage from three. Uh the Mavericks just shot a lot, a lot more threes and made a lot more. Uh, so that could have made the difference. You get huge games from Exum and Hardaway. That makes a difference. Um, you know, credit to the Mavericks. They've got some guys that can play, you know, lively, solid eight points. Uh, Derek lively, the second, that is eight points, eight rebounds, three blocks, two steals. I like what he's doing. Uh, it's not always jumping out on the stat sheet in terms of a rookie of the year chase, but he's going to be one of the top players at the end of this season. It seems like he's on that pace. He'll be on an all rookie type team. Um, he'll be one of those guys that has, you know, one of the better rookie years, it seems. So, yeah, great job to the Mavericks for the Lakers. You know, you're maybe it's a little mini, you know, you're going to drop a game after you, you had that nice run in the tournament. But, uh, the next few games are going to be interesting for the Lakers to see how they, uh, you know, how long it takes maybe for them to get refocused in, in terms of building continue, you know, continuing winning streaks, getting, getting consecutive wins, um, uh, you know, solidifying their place in the conference and trying to maybe elevate their position. Uh, certainly they would like to elevate their position, but uh you know, the Mavericks will be interesting to see if they maintain it as well, but overall great win for the Mavericks in that one. And let's move on to our second game, uh, Eastern conference matchup, the Boston Celtics hosting the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Celtics coming out on top 120 to 113, your final score in Boston. And, uh, you know, another great, you know, kind of fighting win for a team, the Cavs led by about 15 points towards the end of the first quarter. They just came out red hot offensively. The Celtics, did not let them it did not let that phase them. Uh they slowly chipped away at that lead towards the end of the or throughout the second quarter, took a lead at the end of the second, and then it was back and forth from there. Light nine lead changes in the game before taking a, the biggest lead of the game for them uh mid fourth quarter to secure the victory. So uh wire to wire win in the sense of staying with it and being able to fight back. So great job for the Celtics there. Look at the box war for the the uh, Cavaliers. Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell combining for 55 points in this game. Mitchell leading the way with 29 points, six boards and three assists, five of 13 from the three point line. Certainly not afraid to shoot it and he can knock it down uh, fairly efficiently. Garland with 26 points, seven assists and a steal four of eight from three. Uh, those guys really doing what they can to, to power the team to the win without Evan Mobley in this game. Uh, Max Struess, 17 points, five of 11 from three. Uh, 14 points for Jarrett Allen with three steals and two blocks and also five boards, five assists, and then 11 points off the bench for Karis LeVert. Uh, pretty well-balanced game for them, but then for the Celtics, just a bit more well-balanced. Uh, 25 each from Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum for 50-plus uh, points. 
combined for them in comparison to the Cavs duo, uh, you know, both those duos kind of doing that same job. Tatum with 10 boards, five assists, and two blocks as well. Uh, and then also Kristaps Porzingis, 21 points, 10 boards, three assists, two blocks, and a steal. They also got 17 points from Derek White. Uh, two blocks, a steal. Drew Holiday, 11 points, three steals, a block. That defensive impact, along with Peyton Pritchard off the bench, two steals and a block. All of those guys' defensive ability, versatility, and especially the Drew Holiday X factor. You know that's what's gonna set be. That's what's gonna set this team apart and give them a chance. Uh, you know, as long as that gels, that's what's gonna give them a chance to compete for a championship, which they certainly hope to do, and they have done in recent years. But uh, yeah, great all-round win. Celtics bouncing back after, you know, they they have no interest in my power rankings. But of course, I had dropped them one spot in my power rankings, and this is a a statement win in the chase to to move back up to the top in next week's power rankings, I suppose. But um, yeah, great win. Um, Cleveland played well, just Celtics were the better team. And that's about all you can say about that. So let's move on to our next game. Uh, the Denver Nuggets in Chicago against the Bulls, winning that game 114 to 106. The Denver Nuggets, your final score on the road. Uh, for the most part, kept a pretty steady lead. Was never a blowout, but uh, held a, a firm grasp on the lead. Didn't really let it go. Uh, didn't really waver at any point. So kind of a wire to wire victory for them. For the Bulls, they were led by uh, Kobe White again in the scoring category, 27 points and eight assists, five of 10 from three. He continues to be uh, very, very good from three point range over the last few weeks. Nikola Vucevic, 26 points, 16 rebounds, five assists and two blocks. Uh, great all round game for him as well. DeMar DeRozan was 14 points, five assists, two blocks and a steal. Uh, pretty solid. The scoring a struggle, 23% from the floor for DeRozan. And then, of course, no Zach Levine still out with the, uh, the I believe, the foot injury. Um, not a ton of scoring outside of those other guys. I mean, nine points for both Ayu Desomu and uh, and Javon Carter. Eight points for Andre Drummond. You know, not not a lot of other uh, standouts other than White, Vucevic, and, and some other, you know, performances from DeRozan. Meanwhile, for the... Uh, Nuggets with Jamal Murray out for this game. Reggie Jackson stepped up and led them in scoring 25 points and six assists, five of eight from three. I like his kind of career renaissance over the last couple of seasons and especially him being able to have that impact when Murray rests is huge. Now that that's been more of an issue at the beginning of this season. Uh, they also got 17 points, seven rebounds for Michael Porter jr. 14.7 board, six assists for Aaron Gordon 13 points off the bench for Christian Brown and 16 points off the bench as well for Julian Strother, the rookie. Uh, they also got 10 rebounds, two blocks, and a steal from DeAndre Jordan, uh, the savvy veteran. And then how about Jokic? Four points in this game. He only attempted five shots, made two of them. Not terrible, but four points in the game. Played about half the game, but uh, certainly some of that due to uh, an ejection. Let me see if I can find this here, actually. Um there's an update and it was actually during our recording of the last episode when this game was taking place. Um, yeah, you argued a non-call non-foul call at one point in the game. I didn't have, you know, quite the full length of time to, to review the exact play or incident um, and was ejected with about half the minutes he would normally play. So that certainly explains part of it, but nuggets got the job done without him. 
you know, Jordan stepped up with bigger minutes and um, that's a good thing to see. You know, the second unit has been a question for me all year uh, or so far this season and uh, Nuggets, that's a good win and a good, uh, you know, sign for them to keep it together without their, uh, the star who's had to carry them a lot so far this season. But uh, yeah, great win for Denver. Let's move on to our fourth game. We're going to talk about probably the most noteworthy game from last night's action for multiple reasons. Uh, the Phoenix Suns winning at home against the Golden State Warriors, 119 to 116, a close game that didn't necessarily need to be. Um, the Suns took the lead in the first quarter, not by much. Warriors stormed back with a huge second quarter run that the Suns subsequently responded with in that same quarter to then have a tied game at halftime, pretty much uh, back and forth in the third in the fourth, the Suns take a big lead. They really step out ahead um, and the Warriors at a bit of a disadvantage, perhaps, you know, morale wise or, you know, without one of their, their star players. And we'll get into that in just a moment, but um, yeah, the Suns take a lead. They have a big lead kind of towards the back half of the fourth quarter, 13 points. And then the Warriors quickly um, vanquished that lead almost. They they were still down a couple of points towards the end. The Suns made their free throws in the foul game. Uh, At the end, Warriors forced a foul, and then they they had a shot with with Steph Curry on a three-pointer on an inbound. That's kind of what you'd want. That's the guy you'd want. He came a bit short. Suns rebounded it. And uh, the the comeback bid fell just a bit short. It would have been a very wild comeback in just a few moments, uh, or a few minutes rather. But, um, I mean, good win for the Suns, first of all, uh, without Kevin Durant, but the return of Bradley Beal. So Booker and Beal powering the Suns in this game. Looking at the box scores, let's start with the Warriors. Uh, 24 points for Steph Curry. Uh, he was their leading scorer. Also had five assists, or five rebounds, four assists, three steals. Four of 15 from three-point range, definitely a struggle. Uh, 33% from the floor overall. And then the bench guys powering them. Curry, the only starter in double figures. No one else that started the game had more than seven. Meanwhile, the bench had five guys in double figures led by the rookie Brandon Bajemski, or Pojemski. 20 points, 11 boards, five assists off the bench. They got 16 from Jonathan Kaminga and six rebounds. They got 15 from both Chris Paul and Dario Saric. Paul also with 11 assists and then 12 points for Moses Moody. I mean, Paul three of four from the three great second unit performance for them. And I feel like that's been something that's been a little underrated with the Warriors, the growth and development of the second unit, especially with Chris Paul leading that unit, but the starters have been inconsistent and being without one of the other stars is a big factor, but, uh, First, for the Suns, all five of the starters are in double figures, led by Devin Booker, 32 points for him, seven assists. Bradley Beal, somewhat limited minute, 16 points, three assists, a steal and a block. Uh, Booker also with a steal and a block. Uh, so pretty great production for the two guards, the star guards. Yusuf Nurkic with 17 points, 13 rebounds, and seven assists. Solid all round. Chemezi Metu actually starting this game, 14 points. And then Josh Okogi with 10 points as well. And then how about this? I missed a guy. Six guys in double figures. Off the bench, Jordan Goodwin Goodwin with 16 points and six assists, two steals as well to power the second unit. So good win for the Suns. Um, Good win for the Suns and a good win. Um, 
if we want to have a bit of wordplay, I suppose. But uh, that being said, I'll quit be- beating around the bush. I mean, I'm sure plenty of you have seen it already. Uh, Draymond Green ejected in the third quarter. Um, you know, second time in a matter of weeks, really. Um, of course, the Rudy Gobert uh, choke out or, or you know, choke hold or whatever you want to call it uh, was during the, that was during the in-season tournament action uh, or the group play stage rather. And then uh, last night, jostling with Nurkic in kind of a low post type battle, even though it was pretty quickly just moving outside of the actual paint area more towards the you know mid range and edge of the three point arc um and uh i don't know i i draymond's words is he didn't mean to hit nurkic he was trying to to spin around and and break loose of cuz nurkic was you know kind of grabbing at his hip and and you know jostling that way um it's hard to buy that firstly because of the optics i mean if you've seen the clip nurk nurkic and them are, and, and draymond are kind of battling warriors on the offensive side of it from what i remember um i feel like nurkic was the defender in this case and draymond's trying to create position or do something and he basically spins around whips around and just clocks it wasn't a perfect impact, but arm and, and sort of hand right in the face of Nurkic. Nurkic goes down. Um, not really much of a, a fight compared to other moments from Draymond in terms of arguing with officials. Um, he was given the flagrant two, ejected. He ran swiftly to the locker room right after the ejection. And um, yeah, he says he didn't mean it. The history would have you believe otherwise. That, of course, a big factor in how the NBA has looked at this decision. And we'll mention the updates on that in the key news. But for me, it, it just gets a little bit old. And again, as someone who will defend to fans who are ready to disparage Draymond's impact for this reason, among other myriad of reasons, um, I am always willing and eager to emphasize the impact on the defensive side of things in the playmaking category and what he his underrated impact on the Warriors in the championship years and he still is productive but more and more in recent years I mean he's the emotional leader too he he has a chip on his shoulder but now that just is an excuse to be a bit of a villain on the court and not in the fun persona way, but in the um, going to injure you and not take responsibility for it. And it's going to be, you know, something you did wrong. And of course he didn't injure Nurkic, but more just the point of, you know, the kicks and the, the swinging of the arms. And I, he, you got to give him credit in the sense that he sells it in such a way where it's like, it's so it's kind of awkward the body movements where it's like, maybe he was just trying to break free and he doesn't know how to move his body, but he's, he is very intelligent. He's a pro athlete. He works countless hours every week, month, year and season to, to be in the best shape he needs to be, to do his job. He studies the game. 
this is not a person who's going to have such poor control of their body in my mind to have that happen. It just doesn't quite add up. And um, I don't know. I, I was certainly kind of hoping for a suspension because it gets a little bit old, you know, as much as I almost, you know, have a touch of an admiration for guys like a Lambeer um, in days of yore with their willingness to be a villain. And then, you know, Oh, it wasn't me not, you know, play innocent. That could be fun. Reggie Miller could almost be that kind of player too, but even while well, Lambier was more Draymond, but like a Reggie Miller, he was never going to try and hurt someone or be that physical. He would get under someone's skin, but he wasn't going to do that. And so that's where maybe the difference is for me. Um, you know, not having had to watch Lambier play, uh, him being before my time, of course, that it's easy for me to say now, oh, you know, he, he had his own impact, but it's it's hard to say that if I wasn't watching the Pistons of the the bad boy era and the championship years in the late 80s, early 90s, that I would have been a fan. But I digress. Um, could have been a factor. Could have been a turning point. I mean, the Suns played better in that fourth quarter than they had for uh, for a lot of the game, and they were able to get the win. So. It is what it is. Uh, congrats to the Suns for that win. Let's real quick jump to that last game. Uh, the LA Clippers winning at home against the Sacramento Kings, 119 to 99. Um, pretty wide wire victory for the Clippers. Um, after the second quarter, they had a, a pretty commanding victory or com- pretty commanding lead that turned into a victory. They didn't ever uh, really relinqu- relinquish that lead um, throughout the whole game. For the Kings, they were led by. Um, Keegan Murray actually in the scoring category, 17 points, seven boards, three steals for him. Demonis Sabonis with 15 points, 11 or uh, 10 rebounds. And then uh, De'Aaron Fox, 14 points. Kings shot about 42% from the floor and 27% from the three point line. Not the worst we've seen, but just a struggle offensively for them. Meanwhile, for the Clippers, Kawhi Leonard, 31 points, four boards. Um, they got 15 each from James Harden and Norman Powell. Powell, of course, off the bench, and then 10 points for Terrence Mann. Uh, not a super great offensive night in terms of individual scoring for any of their stars either, but, um, I mean, Kawhi had a great night, nearly 80% from the floor for him, and that was maybe the difference. You just needed one guy to power the the victory for one of these two teams, and it turned out to be Kawhi, so solid win for them. A little concerning for the Kings, maybe. Um, Kings are just not as consistent as I would like, but... Uh, that's besides the point. That really kind of takes care of our our key, uh, game summaries rather for now. Let's jump into the key news just so we can give a final update on the current situation for the Draymond situation. Um, he has officially been suspended indefinitely by the NBA. Um, of course, what was talked about and not really surprising, Joe Dumars uh, in the NBA's offices, one who kind of made this decision, um, or at least announce a decision, explain that it was part, it was that same thing we've heard in the past and recent recent years of, you know, a player's history factored into it, their history of this kind of incident. So that's worth noting. Uh, Green will be expected to meet both league and team conditions before returning to play. 
there hasn't been a timeline set for that. So we'll see what happens and we'll see if anything changes. It's just kind of not very surprising at this point, I suppose. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, We have a few transactions for the uh, first for the New York Knicks. They are going to be signing uh, free agent Taj Gibson to a one-year contract to help solidify their front court depth a little bit in the wake of the Mitchell Robinson injury. Um, So injury and surgery. So that'll be good for them. Uh, Along with that transaction, they're also waving forward Dylan Windler. I imagine that's to then shift one of their current standard contract guys down to a two-way deal. If they can do that, I think they can do that. So, um, but I'm just prognosticating there. Um, And then yesterday we talked about the Nathan Knight uh, contract. He was waived by the Celtics uh, and wondered who they would sign to replace that two-way deal. Looks like they're going to be signing forward Drew Peterson to a two-way contract uh, to to give them that third two-way deal. Um, quick update for the Suns. It looks like the big three is likely to play for the first time together in the regular season tonight. Um, so we'll see if that actually happens. If it does, we'll talk to you about it on Friday. And then uh, some news for Oklahoma City and the Thunder. Uh, Oklahoma City voters approve a 1% sales tax for six years to fund a new downtown arena, which is expected to cost $900 million in total. Uh, 71% of voters voted for this new um, proposition, I suppose. And then the deal is set to keep the Thunder in Oklahoma City through at least 2050. So big stuff for OKC. Um, a little bit of a blow. Um, well, especially, I mean, the Thunder have had a great history in their Oklahoma City, you know, existence. Um, fans of Seattle and the Supersonics who are clamoring for a return to that franchise um, are going to have to wait for, you know, the the hope of expansion, which is a, a you know tiny little bit of an undercurrent in recent years, um, the possibility of that, but nothing major on the radar. And Oklahoma City locks down its team for a while. So um, fun stuff for them, though. I think that community has been great. And that franchise has been a nice little, you know, they're the most recent kind of, well, I, I guess the Pelicans, you'd throw that in there. But the the Thunder were the most recent, you know, new market to get an NBA team, I suppose. And so that's been that's been fun. Um but otherwise, that takes care of our key news. We're going to go ahead and move on to um, our game segments, which we haven't done a ton of so far this season. We've done a little bit of the 20 guesses, and a couple times we've done Justin's showdown, and I think it's high time that we hop into that segment again. So here we are with Justin's showdown. All right. For those new to the show, it's Justin's showdown because of uh, one of our co-hosts, Justin. Uh, he was a weekly co-host last season. Uh, hasn't been able to do uh, as big of a time commitment this season due to uh, personal, you know, work and school ob- obligations. So, um, but we this was a, a segment he introduced last season uh, once or twice, and I thought it was a great segment to install a little bit more long term. So it's named for. For him in this case. Um, 
the the showdown we have here, I was just thinking about this matchup. Um, for me, my favorite era of the NBA or, or in pro basketball with two different leagues at that time. Uh, for me, I like to look back to the 70s. It doesn't hurt that my favorite player of all time, Pete Maravich, played in the 70s. But um, there was a ton of great teams, a lot of great parody, kind of similar to what we're seeing in recent years in the modern NBA. So I think that's been, uh, for me, I like to see that, even though, of course, the dynasties are always very fun in their own right to talk about more so after the fact in some ways. But um, no, the 70s were great. Although if you had to pick two teams of the 70s, despite how many different champions there were, no repeat champions in the 70s, the two teams that won more than one championship in the 70s were the Knicks in 1970 and 1973 and the Celtics in 74 and 76. Those two teams, the only two teams to win multiple championships in the 70s, um, and even those were kind of spread out. So... I wanted to focus on those teams and especially some comparisons I was thinking about as far as the latter of the two championships for both squads, the 73 Knicks and the 76 Celtics. Those are the teams we're going to be matching up today. 1973 Knicks versus 1976 Celtics, because these are star studded lineups. And I mean that you look at the 73 Knicks, you compare it to the championship team in 1970 they, of course, had Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, um, Bill Bradley, who, when he was drafted and was a rookie, was a star name due to his collegiate career. Um, Dick Barnett had been, I believe he was an all-star. Yes, he had been an all-star uh, just a couple years prior in New York. Um, so they already had those four guys along with the kind of final piece to that first championship puzzle and Dave DeBuscher, who had been a multi-time all-star in Detroit before joining the Knicks. They were already kind of a star group. I mean, Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and Bill Bradley were the three guys that were drafted by the Knicks and developed into stars while DeBuscher and Barnett were acquisitions. And then they also had, um, well, actually I'm getting out of myself a little bit. Um, let me go back to let me just make sure I, I was I'm pretty sure this is the case. Yes, it is. OK, uh, so besides the point, they had the those five stars at that point. You know, Frazier, Bradley, DeBusher, Barnett and Reed, along with a solid supporting cast. Great depth and guys like Cassie Russell, John Stallworth, uh, Reardon. So. They had a good mix, but then in by the time the 73 team comes around, they have even more star power. They add Jerry Lucas, who at one point was uh, a rebound, you know, one of the greatest rebounders in the game, you know, 19, 20 rebounds a game in his, his prime years in Cincinnati with the Royals. Um, had continued that play for his one full season in San Francisco before joining the Knicks. So they add him to the mix, and then they also add a guy by the name of Earl Monroe in a trade with the Bullets, the Baltimore Bullets of the time, who had been uh, an all-star and a all-NBA guy and a great scoring guard, kind of a combo guard-ish, 
before he joins the Knicks. And those, I mean, that's just some, those are some names and some star power right there. You have Frazier, Monroe, Bradley, DeBusher, and Reed, along with Jerry Lucas and Dick Barnett. I mean, it's hard to go better than that, along with uh, a guy by the name of Phil Jackson, who wasn't a huge statistical performer, but was a, an impact player in in the hustle category. And of course, a great coaching mind, one of the great, maybe the greatest coach in NBA history after his playing career. And then they had a rookie Dean or a sophomore, Dean Meminger, who had uh, a memorable performance, performance for them in the playoffs and was an okay guard off the bench. This is a great lineup. They also had Henry Bibby. Um, I believe, yes, he was there for the, the playoff run, um, although he, it was his rookie season, so he wasn't quite the solidified point guard that he would become, but he was still productive. I mean, a great mix, great names in the uh, the playoffs. They beat the Bullets, and they narrowly defeated the Celtics to move on to the finals rematch against the Lakers where they won in five games. Um, just a stout team. Now, if you look at the Celtics that we're talking about, the 76 Celtics, um, the starting five is ridiculous. Before 75 and 76, they had a truly phenomenal trio in John Havlicek, the underrated player and one of the – one of the greatest Celtics of all time, top five. I, I don't think you can argue that. Dave Callens, who was the league's best center, maybe at that point, uh, you know, other than a, a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, but Callens was a unique impact player, especially at his size and his play style. And then Jojo White, just a great point guard, uh, underrated point guard, especially of the 70s. So they had that lineup and they had Don Nelson, who had been, you know, a, a kind of rookie guy. Um, well, a younger guy on the later years of the Bill Russell championship teams stayed with Boston and became a, a great role player for them. Um, a bigger, small forward who could grab boards. So th those guys were all in the mix. And then you add in two more all-stars, especially Charlie Scott, who had been um, one of the greatest players of the ABA Um in his two full seasons in the ABA, he averaged 30 points a game, five boards, five assists. And that was added to a team like this. And you get a guy like Paul Silas uh, on the team. This is his sixth, fourth season in Boston. And he was a, a 12 rebound per game, physical power forward alongside Cowens, who could, you know, crash the glass too, could score. I mean, what a stout lineup. The weakness that the Celtics have against the Knicks in this matchup, now that we get into the matchup itself, the depth for the Celtics is rough outside of Don Nelson. I mean, Nelson solid. But then these names, Steve uh, Kuberski, Kevin Stacom, Glenn McDonald, Jim Ard, Tom Boswell, Jerome Anderson. These are not names that are going to jump out to you in uh you know a bench category and uh rightly so i mean they were okay players in a sense certainly not great bench uh 
bench impact players. So the Knicks are certainly going to have the better depth. But in terms of star power and consistency, you know, it seems like in our current era, we have a lot of these star-studded teams that get together, but then there's injury troubles more often than not, and uh, it creates, you know, it detracts from obviously their regular season consistency and it makes it harder for them in the playoffs. But I mean, this star studded group was consistent white and Scott in the backcourt played every game that season and started every game. Uh, Silas only missed one game. Cowan's only missed four games. Havlicek only missed six games. So they were out there pretty much every night hooping it up and, and killing it as a starting lineup. And uh, you could work rotations. You could have a couple of those starters always on the floor and still have a great lineup because you have a couple of all-star level players on the floor at all times. And uh, that's hard to argue. And the Knicks kind of have that. um, But I don't know if they have it in, I mean, White, Scott, and Havlicek, and Cowens, all those guys are going to be able to score and create their own shot somewhat. I mean, some a little more limited than others, but um, they can create offense. If you look at the Knicks, Frazier could create offense. DeBusher could. Bradley could and Monroe could. So there's maybe some similar impact. Um, But I almost wouldn't expect DeBusher to create his own offense in the same way that maybe Dave Cowens would, um, as weird as that may sound. Um, And then almost the same for, for Bill Bradley and... And John Havlicek, you know, Bradley was solid, but he was always, in the NBA at least, more of a complimentary player. Havlicek could compliment, but he could do everything, really, for the Celtics. And for a great deal of time, he was a star. When they got all these other stars, he was one of the stars. And so... I think they the the Celtics will still have the advantage there in terms of the pure star power of the the starting lineup compared to the Knicks depth and overall you know kind of impact I suppose. So so that's me just laying the groundwork I suppose for you. I don't really have a definitive answer um as to who I think would win this kind of a matchup. Um so this is where I want to turn it over to you guys the listening audience to reach out to us on our social media pages and maybe give us your thoughts on who you think would win this kind of a matchup. And uh, with that, I'll take a chance to real quick inform you where to find us on social media. Uh, Of course, we're on Instagram and Facebook at crossover across time. uh, Fairly straightforward on Twitter slash X. You can find us at X over across time uh, just due to the character limit. So a little bit different there. Um, but on all three of those, you'll also find a link tree that'll take you to any of the other pages, but will also take you to uh, the podcast itself, where to listen to it. You're already listening, but we're also available. All the places we're available, rather, are we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS.com. So we definitely appreciate you checking out the podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. And again, we welcome you to hop on our social medias where we'll have this posted up uh, at the conclusion of this episode and um, you know, give us a response. Tell us your thoughts on this matchup. Um, I'll probably follow back up on Friday. Uh, hopefully I'll remember to do this, but on Friday I'll follow back up and maybe give a quick thought. You know, I, I thought about it. I feel like this team would win for this reason, but 
Um, we'll see. We'll get to that. But uh, that's our Justin's showdown uh, after we hadn't done it for a couple of weeks. So with that, let's jump into our next segment and our normal Wednesday segment, our weekly predictions. We play predictions. Okay, I alluded to my weekly prediction a little bit yesterday. We talked a touch about the Utah Jazz um, with the summary of their game from Monday night. And we talked about Keontae George. And some of this, I will admit, is maybe me as a slightly delusional Jazz fan just hoping for, you know, the something to save us at this point in the season. It certainly could be worse. You know, we're not completely terrible, but we really have been struggling. Um, I mean, injuries have been a part of it, but the, you know, shot selection at times, the ability to to make shots has been an issue. But, um, you know, I really do think from what I've seen of this player and especially from that that most recent game and, and recent games, plural, we've seen from him, that we can see this. I can see this happening. My prediction is that Keontae George will be named to the NBA's all-rookie first team at the end of the season. It happened last year with Walker Kessler. Um, and Kessler, of course, has regressed a bit. But I feel like Keontae was a great pick. I like his style of play. He seems ultra-confident. Uh, he's got good size, athleticism, and shooting touch for a point guard. He's got all the tools to be right in the the mold of a guy like a Lillard or um, you know Tyrese Halliburton, but just more of a a, a traditional point guard size. Keontae uh, George would be, um, you know, he has that kind of a a potential to be that scoring point guard who can distribute that the modern NBA. Uh, is kind of tailor-made for. I'm not guaranteeing he gets quite to that level because I would not want to guarantee that and jinx it. I hope and feel like that could maybe happen someday. Um, But at this point, I feel like I can, I feel fairly confident making a prediction of, you know, he's off to a great start. He's getting better every week. Um, He's on a good pace. I feel like by the end of the season, he has a, a great chance to, move himself into that top conversation of rookies this season and be at the all be on the all rookie first team. And then just to talk a little more about the jazz in particular, if that happens, you have Keontae George, Larry Markinen, once he's kind of back from injury, you can have Walker Kessler at the center spot. They've now gotten more minutes and more production out of Simone Fontecchio with the injuries. And he's gotten more consistent as a shooter. So you can have him either starting or on the bench, depending on, you know, retooling the rest of the roster. Um, and you use that as your basis, in my opinion. And I think that maybe makes, you know, Sexton, um, Horton Tucker, and Clarkson even a little expendable. But especially with Clarkson, the age timeline is a bit concerning. And, you know, I feel like they could do they could find a younger player with some more potential um, or at least just a little bit more efficient as a shooter at this, this is a shooting guard, maybe small forward spot. Um, they can maybe start bringing in some defensive pieces. Um, 
because that's when something that the Jazz have struggled with in recent seasons, especially, you know, seems like this season. Um, that's my take on the Jazz in the, as a whole, but Keontae George especially, I like what I've seen from him. I'm high on his, you know, his stock and his ability to play. So that's my prediction. I'm going to run with it. And uh, I really hope that by the end of the season, when we check back on this, I'll be like, you know, I was right. He was an all-rookie first-team guy, and he's going to be the future point guard of the Utah Jazz, but I I digress. We're getting a little bit too much into the fandom. So that's it for my weekly prediction, and uh, we'll go and wrap things up. I mean, maybe a little bit of a shorter show for you, but I don't think that's uh, a terrible thing. Um, let's go ahead and give you our This Day in History fact. We're going back to 1983 for this one, December 13th of 1983. Um, this Day in History, Detroit beat Denver. 186 to 184 in a triple overtime game that set NBA records for most points scored in a game by one team, uh, Detroit's 186, and combined between two teams, that 370-point total. Most field goals in a game uh, by one team, Detroit made 74 field goals, and then also combined field goals, 142, and then also combined assists, 93 assists combined between the two teams, just a, a bevy of records. And it's a fun game to point back to, especially when pace of play and scoring increase and um, individual scoring performances have been a conversation in recent years. Um, and fans are like, this is crazy. You know, we haven't seen stuff like this, or maybe they weren't, you know, as familiar. It's fun to point back to the eighties where the three point line did exist, but it was not, use nearly as much as it is now. I mean, teams were attempting, you know, a handful of threes, four or five threes a game, if that. And so for teams to have this kind of scoring pace, um, a lot of people would be surprised. So I think that was a, a fun one to talk about today. But um, huh, excuse me. With that, I think I'll go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, I've rambled long enough. Thank you again for tuning in. We really appreciate your support. Uh, again, upcoming schedule tomorrow. We'll have a bonus episode. Uh, we'll get back to the franchise focus bonus episodes. And this time we'll talk about the Detroit Pistons. Not that we haven't talked enough about them already with their struggles, but you know, we, I think it's still worth going in depth and talking about the, the outlook for the team and also their history. They have a great history. Um, and then uh, we'll be back on Friday as well for our normal Friday podcast. Um, the following week, next week, will be an abbreviated week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday shows before we we have a bit of a, a break uh, for the, uh, the holiday season. So, again, thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow for our latest bonus episode and then also Friday. We'll see you then.